Today on a special birthday edition of the horse race, happy birthday, Steve, redistricting shakeups cause strife on Beacon Hill, plus a new bill released by the Senate aims to enforce parity between mental and physical health. It's Thursday, November 11th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, here with Lisa Kaczynski. Our good friend Jen Smith is off this week. And speaking of this week, it is a huge week in the Cazella household, and that's because kids' vaccinations started this week. How did that go? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a scramble, I'll be honest. We, um, You might remember when adult vaccination started, and it was like, okay, well, now we can just all get appointments, right? Well... Not really, you know, so I was out on the Internet frantically searching for appointments, taking the first ones that I could get. We ended up with an appointment at a Walgreens in Lawrence, which is not near my house. (laughs) So my kids were out of school this morning. We were up in Lawrence. The person behind the desk didn't couldn't figure out how to, like, enter my kids information into the computer. There was a long line of kids. Kids were crying. But at the end of the day, my kids are vaccinated, which is awesome and a great birthday present. Absolutely. This takes me back a little bit to, I want to say, February um, and even the Vax Finders back for this, right? Is that what you used? Actually, it was just somebody t- mentioned, or actually Rich Parr, our research director, director, mentioned that you can just go to CVS or Walgreens website and just make an appointment, you know, which I didn't know. I was sort of waiting to hear from our pediatrician or some sort of more official channel. And instead, you just go out and book one on a, at a pharmacy website. Um, we actually have polling on kids' vaccinations coming out pretty soon. We've got a new poll in our long series of K-12 parent polls that we've been doing going back to the beginning of COVID. That'll be out next Wednesday. There's a release event at 11 a.m., so watch your inboxes or check the Massing Polling social media accounts. You can find a link there to sign up to, to see that. There's a lot in there on what parents are planning to do about vaccinations, how many of them are planning to get their kids vaccinated right away among other topics. Um, And of course, that has a huge impact on just safety, COVID safety in schools. We got an unfortunate reminder this week with the situation at the Curley School in Jamaica Plain that this is not over in schools. Um, So vaccinations will be a a big thing to come. And I'm sure a lot of people will be looking uh, for the results of that. I'm sure that I will be too. I'll be keeping an eye on my inbox. But what are we doing here today? Ah, the eternal question. Well, today, Lisa, we are talking to the co-chair of the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Abuse, and Recovery. State Senator Julian Sear will be talking to us about a brand new comprehensive bill on mental health treatment. Plus, we have a very special guest, Lisa Kaczynski, to unpack just what was making redistricting conversations so heated this week. So let's go. A new bill out of the state Senate this week seeks to change the way mental health is treated. If it becomes law, it would represent a huge change in how we think about and treat mental health in Massachusetts. So what does it do? Joining us now to discuss the bill is the co-chair of the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use, and Recovery, Senator Julian Sear. Welcome back. Hello. It, it, it's good to be with you. I, I think we did this, I think I was last on the podcast in February 2020. I think talking about this very bill and um, it uh, a, lo- a lot happened between now and then, but uh, it's it's good to be back on. Like, what are a couple of the things I can't, I can't think of anything? <laughs> you know, a, a pandemic. This and that. Uh, yeah. You know, this and that. 
a, a few things, but it's uh, it's good to be with you again. So let's start with the basics then, because I know that the bill that we're talking about now is a bit different than the bill that we were talking about then. And it's also been long enough that for those unfortunate souls who don't re-listen to the podcast on a regular basis, including old episodes, what does the bill actually do? So, you know, I I should start by saying too many people in Massachusetts struggle to access the mental health care services they desperately need. And, and they deserve. And, and this is something that we've been working on in the Senate, uh, you know, for quite some time. Senate President Spilko really has has had a real vision here of us transforming mental health care and mental health services in the state. And so to that end, the Mental Health ABC Act proposes bold measures that help us take the necessary steps we got to take to actually have a mental health care system that is coherent and that can get uh, mental health care to people when they need it. Um, And we do that by working through parity implementation and other insurance reforms. Uh, We take a number of steps to make mental health care more accessible and we support our workforce. And we're pairing this with, I should say, a very significant investment of $400 million investment um, in, in, in our ARPA dollars uh, including $122 million in, in, in a loan forgiveness program to really beef up and build up our, our behavioral health workforce. Um, through that effort, uh, which dovetails with the bill, uh, we're going we're gonna to incentivize and see an additional 2,000 uh, providers in the behavioral health space. And this bill is personal for you and some of the other senators behind it, right? Tell us why. So, you know, the, the issues we're talking about today, a lot of these are not new, right? Advocates and, and, and people who do this work have been, you know, pounding the pavement and, and maybe running their heads into the, in, into a, in the proverbial wall, um, you know, for quite some time. What's changed is that, you know, people have been telling their stories and opening up about their own struggles with, with mental health or substance use or, or talking about what it means to be a parent, a friend, a loved one who's grappling with, with behavioral health challenges. And, and I think that's really done a lot to break down the stigma and, and really to kind of, you know, sort of shed that, that the old ways of thinking we've had around, around mental health, which, which is something that you know, just didn't talk about. And the Senate president's re- really done that in, you know, talking about her own family's experience growing up with a, a father who had a, a PTSD from World War II. Um, you know, and I really try to do that too. You know, look, I'm someone who, has struggled with anxiety and depression since adolescence. Uh, for, for me, you know, from an early age, people knew I, I was different, especially in school. I was bullied, I had panic attacks. At, at one point I developed an eating disorder. But for me, therapy, right, mental health care helped me manage my anxiety and it helped me do things I never dreamed I could do, uh, including, you know, the, the gig that I have today. Um, and I see in my own experience, when my mental health provider, you know, moved out of a, a community health center and went into private practice, uh, getting health insurance to cover, you know, my outpatient behavioral health care um, was was a total bear. For for a while, we couldn't do it. Uh, you know, now it's technically finally covered, but it's through a complicated reimbursement process. I really consider myself a pretty savvy consumer here, right? I'm I'm a 35 year old state senator who, who specializes in, in, in healthcare and public health and mental health policy. If I'm, you know, 
can't, if I can't navigate really or struggle to navigate the barriers in this broken system, um, imagine how many people in Massachusetts can't get the mental health care they need. And anecdotally, it certainly feels like the challenges are very real. You know, I certainly do, and I'd venture to say most people do know a number of people who are struggling in some way to get seen or find care or figure out how they're going to pay for care. So for people in that situation, what what relief is on the way and how quickly should we expect to see it? So, so relief is on the way as soon as we can get, you know, this bill passed. We're going to get this bill passed in the Senate before the recess. Uh, we need to get it over the finish line in the House and, and get the governor to sign it into law. Um, and, and, and we try to look at a very complicated, fragmented um, mental health care and mental health services um, system, if you can call it that, and, and, and look at it in a number of areas. Um, you know, a real cornerstone of this reform is the belief that mental health care should be treated just like physical care. And so to that end, the bill mandates coverage for a yearly mental health wellness exam, similar to an annual physical. We've worked really hard in, in, in public health to get people thinking about, all right, I do an annual physical. Why? Because we know early intervention um, when it comes to chronic disease, when it comes to a whole host of conditions, makes all the difference in the world. Well, guess what? That same early intervention really pays off um, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to substance use disorder. If you can identify you know, um, that, that someone's dealing with some depression uh, and, and get them some help, uh, sooner that makes a world of difference um, in in you know avoiding a, a more acute psychosis. Uh, so so that's a, a real cornerstone of this reform. It's a new piece in the bill. Uh, we would be the second state in the country to get this done. Colorado um, was the first, but I, I think it's something that really trying to reframe that mental health is part of our health care of overall health, and that what you do, what we were at, we, we want the public to be doing. Is, is getting those annual well visits. The other, another sort of really big piece of this is about uh, enforcement of parity law. And, you know, what's interesting here, state and federal laws have, all, have been in place in some cases for decades uh, around parity, which is this very simple idea that you basically have to treat mental health in the same way as, as physical health when it comes to uh, insurance. And yet, despite years of having these laws in the books, we continue to see a gap for coverage of mental health services when we look at medical and surgical care. So the Mental Health ABC Act provides a whole suite of tools to better equip the Commonwealth to implement and to enforce these laws. It includes more reporting requirements, the division of insurance and mass health, stiffer penalties for non-compliance, and then a whole suite of enhanced consumer protections so consumers have a clear place to look and to go um, when, when, when they're denied coverage for mental health treatment. So you mentioned Colorado and Senate President Spilka had also mentioned this being potentially a national model. Do you see this bill impacting mental health treatment across the country or any other states trying to do similar legislation? So I, I, policy wonks you know, across the country are often looking to Massachusetts when it comes to health care because we you know, have been leading the way, you know, whether it was um, you know, the universal coverage reforms that we did in, in 2006 uh, and, and our, our broad public health supports, 
um, what we've been doing around uh, responding to, to the open epidemic and substance use disorder. And, and that is part of, you know, this bill is part of that tradition where, you know, we're doing things when you look at parity implementation, uh, we would have some of the most aggressive laws in the country around compliance with, with parity, um, which is not only just about, in, you know, our bill doesn't only enforce the state laws, but we enforce, you know, the federal laws, work that um, Representative uh, Kennedy uh, of Rhode Island worked to, to, to enshrine into law. Uh, so, so, you know, um, I, I, I'll, I'll let other folks sort of adjudicate uh, where Massachusetts is, is sort of in, in, in the national horse race um, when it comes to healthcare and mental health policy. But, you know, what we're doing here is we're trying to be really bold and we're trying to be comprehensive. So this bill doesn't just focus on, uh, you know, parity implementation and insurance reform. It doesn't just focus on the wellness piece. It doesn't just respond to the ED boarding crisis. But we look at, you know, really how do you build a culturally competent workforce um, and, and how do you do a whole host of things? I also want to be clear, you know, that this isn't the last bill we're going to do on mental health. And, and, and the minute, you know, we get this bill signed into law and, 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 and underway, you know, we're going to start working on the next suite of legislation because we know that there are so many challenges. You have such a fragmented um, mental health care uh, structure that you got here in the, in, in the state and across the country. So it's going to take really, it's going to take a lot of persistence in coming back and back, um, you know, to these policies to truly realize this vision that the Senate president has uh, of transformation of mental health. One of the things that's been discussed a lot in the course of creating this bill is the idea of reducing emergency room wait times for mental health patients specifically. Um, and this is another thing where it seems like it's often left to the individual or their family to kind of call around until they can figure out some way to get them in some door um, to get some kind of care. This would change all that. Tell us more about that. So, you know, for anyone who unfortunately has, has either been in need of acute psychiatric care themselves or has a family member, maybe a child, a loved one, um, the experience now is, is, is pretty unacceptable. Uh, you walk in the emergency department, you get given to bed and you sit and you wait. And you wait not just for hours, not just for days, but in some cases, you know, multiple days, weeks on end. In some instances, we know of, of, of a few instances of, of it being months. And so we try to take a pretty comprehensive approach to addressing what is really built up to become an absolute crisis. And I think it's something that is just unacceptable um, that, that we need to fix. So given, you know, given the severity and urgency here, we tackle the issue in, in several ways. So first we create an ARPA funded online portal to establish real-time data and to provide a search function for healthcare providers to fit people into open beds. Right now, the process is, you know, you come and you need to, you're, 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 you know, you're evaluated, you need a bed, and essentially you just start calling around to try to find where people should be placed. Um, it, is, it is the 21st century. We should be able to do that, uh, you know, do that in a more um, uh, technological and, and, and a savvy way. And, and so the bill uh, creates a portal to find those beds, and we fund that effort in, in our ARPA proposal with $5 million. We also require that all hospital emergency departments have a qualified behavioral health clinician available to evaluate and stabilize a person when they show up at the ED. Um, you know, we do hear instances where 
you know, someone will someone will come out, come in and in, in the middle of the night or, or on a weekend, and and there just aren't behavioral health providers present. Um, if you're coming in with with acute cardiac arrest, uh, you know, no, no one tells you like, oh, the cardiac people aren't around until uh, you know they don't get in for eight hours. You know, wait. Um, so we want to have uh, more ready response there, and then we do a lot to look at uh, kids who. Um, really have have, have uh, been stuck in this in this ED boarding purgatory. Um, we create a complex case resolution panel to help resolve barriers for children who have, have complex behavioral needs uh, and 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 figuring out um, where they need to go and who needs to pay. Uh, and then there's a, a series of reporting uh, and analysis that we ask the Office of the Child Advocate and the, and the Health Policy Commission to do so we can get this right. The other piece around the ED boarding crisis, particularly particularly today, is a workforce problem. We have dozens and in some cases hundreds of beds that are not online today because there is not the available staff um, to to, to staff those beds. And so what we're doing in ARPA by by essentially recruiting 2,000 additional people into this workforce, we hope that that's going to help uh, get some of these beds online as well. Um, we also, uh, in another provision uh, in the bill, uh, we um, we provide an exemption to the Department of Public Health's determination of need process. If you are, are a facility that's hoping to be- build uh, new inpatient psychiatric beds, uh, you're going to be exempt from that DON process. We craft the language in a narrow way, so it's not a broader exemption, uh, but another incentive to say, hey, look, you know, we want the healthcare system to be responding here and to have adequate beds. Uh, and so we're going to cut cut through some red tape um, so those can happen quicker. I want to bring this back to the pandemic for a minute. Uh, there's been so much talk about mental health as it relates to COVID. So how much of a role did COVID play in this bill? So, so you know, COVID, you know, in part is what... Um, what contributed to the fact that that we couldn't get it over the finish line and onto the governor's desk uh, last session? You know, I think the Senate had teed up a, a very strong piece of legislation. I was I was cautiously optimistic, um, working with uh, then uh, Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use and Recovery Chair Marjorie Decker, uh, that we could get a House bill, and 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 the Senate passed this bill in February 2020. And you know, we all know what happened in, in early March, which. Um, you know, certainly consumed so much of our time. So, so even in the mechanics of this, right, the pandemic uh, has, has influenced uh, its timing. I think what the pandemic has done, so there are several things that are worse in the pandemic. Uh, there's a workforce crunch and a crisis. And I think particularly we're now seeing that um, people across the healthcare workforce, but particularly in behavioral health, people are burnt out, they're leaving the workforce. It, it's hard to recruit people. But a number of other components in this bill are things that we work, we're working on pre-pandemic, the parity components, uh, a number of others. What the pandemic, I think, has done is given everyone an appreciation that you know, mental health care and taking care of one's own mental health, this isn't, this isn't just nice to have stuff. That the pandemic um, was, was a shared experience that we all went through but I think has given everyone, you know, lawmakers included, a newfound appreciation as to how essential mental health care is when you need it. 
And what we've seen in the pandemic is that people can't get the mental health care they need when they need it. And so I'm hoping it gives new urgency uh, to, to these policies, some of which are, are things we've been working on for some time, uh, some others that are a little newer. And, and with that shared experience, I, I hope it's going to uh, spell a recipe for, for action and, and, and a recipe to get a law in the books. All right. Well, co-chair of the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use and Recovery, Senator Julian Sear, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through this. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for covering uh, this most important issue. Beacon Hill has now finalized new maps for the state legislature, but they're still working on congressional districts. And there's a major disagreement on what to do with the city of Fall River. Under the current map, the city is split between two congressional districts, and the new proposal would unite it into one district. Here to talk us through this, the master herself, the regent of redistricting, Lisa Kaczynski. Lisa, you've watched this closely. What's wrong with reuniting the city and the new districts? It's certainly causing a case of South Shore separation anxiety, I'll tell you that. So to recap, Fall River right now is currently split roughly in half between Representative Jake Auchincloss's 4th District and Representative Bill Keating's 9th District. New Bedford, on the other hand, is entirely in the 9th District as the map is right now. So the new map would put all of Fall River in the 4th District. So that's a win for people who had wanted Fall River to be reunited and to not be split in half anymore. The problem, at least for some people, is that it would fully separate the city from New Bedford. So all of Fall River would be in the 4th, all of New Bedford would be in the 9th. And that's where the drama begins. And just to remind people, the 9th District kind of curls all the way out around the Cape, and that includes some of the towns down in the Fall River and New Bedford area. The 4th District starts up in Brookline and kind of goes all the way down to that same area, but in the past has only included half of Fall River. So is basically that, is it that people think that Fall River and New Bedford should stay together, or, or what's the main source of controversy at this point? So there's a largely New Bedford-based contingent, but there are Fall River activists who agree with this, who really want these two gateway cities, these two big South Coast anchors in the same district because they have shared interests between offshore wind and other economic interests, fishing. They have similar immigrant communities, communities of color. Um, They're both working class cities. So these people really want to see these two cities stay together. And that's uh, Representative Bill Keating. That's New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell a whole host of legislators and activists, um, again, largely New Bedford-based, but there are Fall River activists, advocates, business leaders who want to see these two cities stay combined. It has been interesting to see kind of who lines up on each side, because it's not certainly partisan, because Democrats are almost certainly going to win these seats anyway, and it's not exactly predictable. Um, Congressman Bill Keating, for instance, said there's no reason for the South Coast to be divided between its two gateway cities. And in my conversations with Senate Chair Will Brownsberger, I was presented with no convincing reason why this is now the case. He said that on Twitter. Um, and of course, he's the congressman for the Ninth District, which is the one which would now only have one of the two cities in it. So who are some of the other people or groups on either side and and why? What, what are the interests that are placing them on either either side of this divide? Well, let's start at the top. So we, with the congressman, we have Bill Keating, as you just said, and then former uh, 4th District Representative Joe Kennedy, who agrees with Keating on this, who says that these two cities should be together. But the current representative for the 4th, Jake Auchincloss, wants them to be separate. 
Uh, he wants Fall River to be entirely in the fourth. You can guess why. It's politically advantageous for him um, heading into next year and beyond. But he also says that Fall River would be the flagship of the district. Um, and it would be the city with the biggest population in that district, um, you know, if this proposed map holds. There are some people who argue that, you know, with the actual voting turnout, um, it wouldn't necessarily be the biggest, but that is his argument for it. But, you know, this has pitted legislators against legislators and and mayors against mayors, and it's not entirely, as you kind of alluded to, along city lines. There is a big contingent of Fall River electeds who really want their city to not be in New Bedford's shadow, as they kind of put it. They really want it to have its own power, and they think that having two congressmen advocating on the South Coast instead of just one, if they were in the same district, is really the way to go. But there are a lot of activists within, um, you know, Fall River who want to see these two cities combined. That's a very interesting point. And of course, you think back to the the fourth congressional district primary last time and how many Brookline candidates there were. So it's not necessarily the case that the center of gravity for the fourth would shift to Fall River right away if the whole city were put in Fall River uh, or the whole or Fall River were put in the fourth rather. Um, so certainly a lot to think about there. So in terms of process, though, what happens now? Where are we, you know, in terms of the overall process of drawing the new maps? What has to happen for it to be resolved and how quickly should we expect that to happen? Honestly, look for it in the next few days. Um, they are moving pretty quickly with these maps at this point, And this is that's because this is the end of a very long process. They've had... I think more than 20 public hearings or so throughout this year, the House and Senate maps have already been signed into law. So the congressional map and the governor's council map are the last two. They had a five and a half hour public hearing earlier this week. The map makers, you know, the the lawmakers on the redistricting committee are now kind of taking it under advisement. They were talking, um, you know, on Wednesday about what changes, if any, should be made. And you can be able to look for, you know, any of those potential changes or what the maps will be in the coming days. So we don't have any real sense, though, of what the ultimate fate of the Fall River question will be. From what Representative Mike Moran, who is the House chair of the redistricting committee, said yesterday, at least the way he heard the testimony was about 50-50 on which way people wanted this to go. He personally seems to believe that what they did with the maps is a good thing, uh, putting Fall River, making it whole in the 4th District, and giving it kind of a bigger voice in that district. And the redistricting committee is not just Mike Moran, though. There are several members of both the Senate and the House on it, so they will have to kind of take the temperature, see if there's any changes they want to make. All right, well, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much to the regent of redistricting, Lisa Kaczynski. All right. Well, that brings us to our favorite segment. And based on exhaustive research by our audience analytics department here at Horse Race Global Media Empire headquarters, your favorite segment, too. And that, of course, is trivia. So last week, we asked you the question, before entering public service, incoming Boston Mayor Michelle Wu held a job at a company where former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney once also worked. The question was, what was the company? We had a variety of answers. We had former co-host Stephanie Murray say Dunkin' Donuts, which actually seems fairly plausible given that they both spent a lot of time in Massachusetts. We also had Taco Bell. That seems less plausible, though we can't, I suppose, definitively rule it out. We had a couple guesses for Bain Capital, and we had Jesse Hahn and Josh Gee both identify the correct answer, which was Boston Consulting Group. The question for this week is, 
The city of Fall River, sticking with our Fall River theme, has had two mottos. It just adopted its current one in 2017 and had one for decades and decades before that, going all the way back to the 19th century, which was incredibly uninspiring. So what was that motto? And for 10,000 extra horse race trivia points this week only, find us a less inspiring municipal motto than the one Fall River had for all that time. And for 20,000 extra bonus trivia points, tell me what New Bedford's old slogan was. Because apparently they've changed it. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, that's 30,000 extra trivia points they were offering this week, so I can be pretty sure that REF7 will answer both or all of these questions. But for now, that is all the time we have today. I'm Steve Kazella here with Lisa Kaczynski. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast this week. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Lisa Kaczynski's Massachusetts Political Playbook, and do give us a ring at the Massing Polling Group for polls. Keep an eye out for us next week. We will see you then.